0: Chapter 12 of Hebrews, and just for beauty of expression, the book of Hebrews I think is one of the the outstanding books in all of scripture, and chapter 12 maybe reaches heights of uh, beauty that are unequaled uh, anywhere in the Bible. Um, but I'm going to do a, a, a kind of injustice and try to cover chapter 12 uh, in uh, one, one sermon. But let's read just a, uh, the beginning, and then as we go through it, I'll comment and read other sections of chapter 12. Beginning with uh, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The, there is here a picture. We've talked about Jesus is the fulfillment of faith. Uh, and the picture of Jesus. as The high priestly ministry of Jesus. And here it's brought to culmination. In that he is seated at the right hand of the father. After the resurrection. And after the ascension. This inaugurates a new age. And throughout chapter 12 he's describing this new age and of course the new age is one that is breaking into the present age he's saying you've come to mount zion in the heavenly jerusalem to the heavenly jerusalem the city of the living god Um, that it is a new age which promises uh, you know that the examples we've been through in Uh, the past, in chapter 11, they did not obtain this heavenly city. But he's saying Christ obtained it and you are obtaining it. Jesus' offering, which brings about, and this is the, the note here that's obvious throughout Hebrews, is that the writer of Hebrews is describing this cosmic salvation in which heaven is being established on earth In no way could we conflate uh, Jesus' salvation with his death. And here, you know, that he's seated at the right hand of the the Father. He's interceding for us as the high priest. And so, we've entered into this apocalyptic resurrection age, which is contrasted with other ages in which salvation is fully come or, or is in the process of fully... Being realized, and the great cloud of witnesses, maybe an understanding that, that, and remember that witnesses, martyrs, same term, are not looking at us so much, but are witnesses to the faith to which we are to look. Here we have a host of examples and the host of examples that we looked at in chapter 11, culminate in Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And so we're to look to him. He's the one who has been faithful. And his faithfulness is the one that we are to participate in. And of course, the image is that of an athletic event. Uh, Lay aside in every encumbrance. And the sin which so easily entangles. That is, we're to lighten our burden. We're to put on, uh, you know, run this race that is set before us with patience. And patience and endurance is a key theme in Hebrews. Uh, In 12 to 14, Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet. So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So what is the goal? It's peaceableness. All discipline for the moment, he says, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is why we're running this race, is to achieve this peaceableness. The basis of this peaceableness is not, at least in 12.2, described in terms of sacrificial language or sacrificial categories. He speaks of the cross as a continuum. Jesus' death is on a continuum with the martyr's death or the witnesses that we've we've been talking about. And so the cross is presented as Jesus' moment of trial. His death is part of his preparation for his entry into his inheritance, his rest, his place at the right hand of the Father. My point here, if ever there were a place in Scripture that makes it clear that the message of the cross is not Luther's imputed righteousness. This is it. You know, imputed righteousness would be to say, well, he died so that we don't have to, that we receive a kind of theoretical or legalistic righteousness. But this is precisely what the writer is not saying. He faithfully endured and so should we. He took up the cross, and we should too. We take up our cross and follow Him. He did not shrink back. He entered in. He obtained a better resurrection. And in being faithful as He is faithful, we can follow the path. He is the pioneer, the perfecter of the path that we are following. And so 12, uh, 3 to 11 He directly applies Jesus' example to the readers. Follow the example of Jesus' faithfulness to endure. Jesus is not simply an object of faith, but he is the subject. That is, that we take on the likeness of Christ. A key part of this endurance is to recognize the time. The writer sets the entire frame of this enduring faith in a kind of apocalyptic imagery. He says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the myriad of angels, to the assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Uh, It's an apocalyptic image of one age breaking into another age, of the city of heaven breaking into the city of man. He's saying we've come to this place now. You've come to Mount Zion. His voice shook the earth in, but now he is promising, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And yet this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as if created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may may remain. And then look at verse 28. We receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. It's a present happening. Let us show gratitude. We're to live in this hope and faith. We're receiving this eternal city. And by this, we may offer to God an acceptable service. You know, what is salvation? What is, well, it is this service. Uh, we receive Uh, We offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and all. And so several things are coming together. Uh, Hebrews has emphasized deeds throughout. That is, we are to be performing deeds, working of, of faithfulness. And these deeds are framed within faith, faithfulness, hope. Hope is a lived reality that we're working out now and patience that we're going to patiently endure. And the ultimate model in all of this is Christ. But all of this is due to Christ, and it's set in an end-time frame in the sense that we can see the end of his faith. He suffered the most shameful death, and yet it says he despised its shame. He was raised, ascended, he is seated, He is at the right hand of the Father. And so in Hebrews, how does Christ save? Well, his ascension once again plays a key role here. And it's key in recognizing the nature of our own race. So we can recognize the goal to which we are striving. The discipline is to enable us to enter his rest, participate in his glory. Find a final and full access to God. Last week I mentioned Martin Luther King Jr. on the night before he was killed. You know, he's he said, "I've seen the promised land." I think he's very much captured the imagery of Hebrews chapter twelve. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes the poem, "The Death of Moses." He says. I've seen the promised land, prepare me now. That is that we can face the worst sorts of suffering as we see this great hope. And I think the writers or or the readers here may be facing uh, a period of persecution. Here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for that city. We can see it. Though they all receive the fullness of faith, They died not having received the promise, but we are receiving that promise. They confess they were foreigners and wanderers on the earth. Their desire is not yet fulfilled. They still seek a better country, a city prepared for them. And so he's saying what they long for, we are seeing. So apocalypse here, the idea of God radically breaking into human history to bring to an end one political cultural era era and and to establish another and so it is an apocalypse you know if you turn on the tv nearly every show you see is going to be apocalyptic it's in time you know 24 they they the the world is about to end in every season it's a sensibility it's a space it's here in philosophy, it's there, you know, uh, little rocket man and big rocket man may blow us all up, we don't know. But there is the idea of the potential for a literal end of, of civilization as we know it. Uh, the complete destruction of the world, Faith and I watched a movie on Friday night, it's called Geostorm. And in this, you know, the... the uh, weather in the world, the global warming has taken over, and they've sent satellites up. And the satellites, there's hundreds of these satellites, and they're uh, manipulating the weather. And then an the evil guy, you know, gets a hold of the weather and starts, you know, it's apocalypse again and again. But why are we? Well, you know, think World War One, the war to end all wars. It was one of the deadliest conflicts in human history. We've lived, we've gone through a century of apocalyptic happenings. They say that some 37 million people died. And people, there had never been this great a tragedy. And of course, what comes after the war to end all wars, the second war to end all wars, in which we believe maybe 80 million people died. There's never been this slaughter in the history of the earth. Um, that literally you could, you know, what is it, 3% of human population was killed off. Uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki alone, you know, this apocalyptic image of uh, hundreds of thousands of people being killed by one one bomb. And so we live in a time in which the total destruction of the world is very much conceivable. And the modern era is best understood, maybe, as a kind of apocalyptic understanding. That we live in an age that thrives on crisis. Just turn on CNN. And it always waits for the new, the improved, which can, in some way, render obsolete everything that has come before. An apocalyptic turn can be found also in politics, and in philosophy, um, we seem fixed on impending catastrophes, whether it's ecological or not. In philosophy, I don't know if you've heard of deconstruction. The idea is that modernity is ended, and the, in the postmodern period, that there is the undoing of the, the philosophical world or understanding as we know it.. Um, Christianity assumes, though, it, it's a very different apocalyptic understanding. It assumes that the crisis will be resolved, and indeed in Christ it has already been solved. Modern, postmodern, apocalyptic thrives on the idea of an irresolvable character to the crisis. Um, I've did my research on a guy, he's an atheistic Marxist materialist, uh, Slavoj Žižek, and he writes a book called Living in the End Times. Uh, what he's describing is this kind of po- apocalyptic sensibility that's captured even in a bad sense. You know, think of Hal Lindsay's, Late Great Planet Earth. Uh, it's apocalypse gone bad, and I think many Christians have an apocalyptic understanding that is simply not grounded in Scripture. Oh, apocalypse is very much there in the New Testament, but it's the apocalypse of Genesis, or rather of Hebrews chapter 12, of the heavenly city breaking in uh, to the, the earthly realm. Um, I think that in fact we need to in some way. Get rid of bad apocalypse. Maybe even as we were discussing this morning, a misunderstood view of God, uh, and we do this. I think that you know we often. What is the bad apocalypse? I think it's to picture the destruction of this world and deliverance then to another world. But what we have pictured in in uh, Hebrews is that this world is being redeemed. It's being destroyed, it's being undone, but at the same time it's part of a process of redemption. Um, that It's not that this world is to be burnt up and thrown away or that our bodies, the material realm, you know, oh, we just cast off this mortal coil uh, that in some way we have innate immortal souls that will spring to heaven. Uh, get rid of you know getting rid of our biological body in a kind of disgust. Um, it creates a, the, that there's a kind of uh, perverse relationship that we have to the world and to ourselves, in which there is a masochistic self relation. Uh, sometimes, even in our understanding of God, that God is himself a kind of masochist. I'm an atheist when it comes to this understanding of God. And I think all Christians should be good atheists. You know, this is what Christians were originally accused of in Rome. The Christians didn't believe in the gods of Rome. And they were accused of atheism. The Christians refused the pagan gods. I believe this god, this masochistic god of a wrong apocalypse is in fact a God that Christianity undoes. And we should all then pass from this bad apocalypse in which uh, some would take deep satisfaction, you know. This is Henry Bergson at the outbreak of World War One. Uh, he said, there's a great satisfaction in the, uh, in, in the physical outbreaking of catastrophe. And, of course, what he's describing is in some way that cures his inward struggle. There's a deep satisfaction in the destruction of the body and the world, and in some ways we tend to project this onto God. Christ, I think, brings an end to this perverse religion, this perverse understanding of God, not by getting rid of the heavenly city, but by bringing heaven and earth together. In other words, Zizek and the atheistic Marxist materialists, I think they rightly identify a sick Christianity, a Platonic Christianity, but the answer is not to rid ourselves of Christianity, but it's to go back to the Christianity of Hebrews chapter 12. The body of Christ is ascended to the right hand of God. It is not a passage beyond embodiment, but a positive embodiment which is the true temple. The world is the holy habitation of God, and this is captured in the bodily ascension of Christ. Jesus completely shares in the human condition, and this accounts for his death and for his being in a condition in which he can overcome death and break the power that it exercised. You know, this is uh, chapter 2. He He destroys the slavery to the fear of death, to fear. This fearless life orientation is available to us through his priesthood. And so Jesus' resurrection is a commencement of the last days. Right? In eschatological thought, this is why Jesus' resurrection is so strange for the Jews. They expected resurrection at the end of the ages. Well, it is the end of the ages. We've entered into the final age. It's a, you know, uh, it's a discontinuity in history. It's a, Paul and the writer of Hebrews both describe it as an event like creation, a sui generis event occurring in history, yet defying all current canons of the study of history. Jesus breaks into history. It's an act of God on the order, you know, he describes raising up of Abraham and Uh, the uh, creation of the world. It is in this act that Christ claims uh, lordship in our lives. His resurrection, his recreation commenced. Jesus Christ, Paul says, has been designated son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? Do you remember the rest of the sentence? By his resurrection from the dead. I think that the resurrection, the ascension of Christ uh, is a new way of construing the world. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. End time has begun in Christ. A new creation has come to pass. Now, the old epic lingers. We live between the times we're participating in the old at the same time that the new is breaking in. And the two epics confront one another. And so resurrection is an apocalypse. The point of resurrection and and ascension is not to aggravate the notions of alienation through the idea, oh, Jesus has departed. No, the idea is that at the right hand of the Father, he still mediates on our behalf. Resurrection and ascension joins us firmly to an alternative embodied reality. Uh, the Christian is normally not, you know, is normally thought to be united with Christ Himself, His Body. It's not just with an image. That is, the Church is, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, the continuation of the Incarnation. The Cross is an act; it's certainly actualized in baptism. But think of baptism: its death, its resurrection. There is not the presumption of escaping time and history, but rather something new is unfolding from within time. Christ breaks into history with his birth, his incarnation, his life, death, resurrection. And so this is the significance of his ascension. His eternally resurrected body seated at the right hand of God. The writer of Hebrews has emphasized we're saved by the ascension of Christ throughout the book. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 1-3. 8-1, one One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, 12-2. At the right hand of the throne of God, he has taken his seat. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so what is the emphasis? You know, Well, it's on certainly the move of Jesus' action that is culminating or completed when he ascends and takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. He inherits the promised rest. And how did he achieve this? Through Well, he endured the cross. He could scorn its shame because death could not hold him. Death is not an absolute. It's not that it's eternal. It's not that the separation between the Father and the Son in some way bears some eternal significance. His bodily ascension is the eternal defeat of death. Now he not only rests, but he also brings rest. The rest came through the struggle. Christ endured the hostility of sinners to the point of the cross, but the point is not simply to struggle. The point is not simply some sort of dialectic or hostility or conflict, but these are endured for the sake of rest. Christ's ascension is that rest. The image of Christ seated seated at the right hand is one of peace. The writer says it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So whatever persecution his audience faced, I think the author of Hebrews tells us that they have not yet shed to the point of blood. This suggests that they might have to do so. Maybe this is coming. The author prepares them for this possibility. He reminds them of the exhortation in Proverbs. The Lord disciplines and chastises the child whom he loves. And the child here has a reference both backward and forward. It points backward to Christ and what he endured. And it points forward to the potential discipline that they may have to experience. It points forward to the Hebrews listeners and what they you know, the persecution they could endure. And so his readers here face and face something evil. And like the faithful in chapter 11, they were not delivered from it the first time. Hebrews offers no guarantee that they will be delivered this time. This is not a health and wealth gospel. What the author does that suggests is that whatever they face should be thought of as something more than the bare act of aggression, the pure evil that is brought against them. But rather they should look deeper and the Father see that the Father uses it to discipline just as Christ's cross was the means for his ultimate obedience. It's not that the Father willed the death of the Son, but the Father can use the death of the Son in our redemption, and He can use evil as it's brought against us as a discipline. It's not that He causes it. The hostility can be endured because it contains something more than you know a bare resistance. God is present even in it, willing the perfection that can endure and obtain the rest. I think this makes. Uh, It doesn't explain evil, I'm not saying that. It doesn't justify evil. But it gives us the right orientation that we're to have in the midst of suffering. That we endure. And in this we can see that this endurance, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let's sing our hymn of this.